You're listening to the Design Engineering Podcast, where we explore topics important to Canada's mechanical engineers, product designers, and machine builders. I'm Mike McLeod, editor of Design Engineering Magazine, and in this episode, I interviewed John Hepburn, CEO of MyTax, the Canadian not-for-profit that pairs private companies with research specialists at Canadian universities to drive innovation. During our conversation, John delves into the organization's history, explains how the MyTax program works, and reveals how companies can affordably leverage Canada's academic R&D expertise. But before we jump in, a few words from this episode's sponsor, IGUS. IGUS engineers and manufactures self-lubricating, maintenance-free plastic components for moving applications in nearly every industry. IGUS also offers flexible cables and durable plastic cable carriers guaranteed to last up to 36 months. Visit IGUS.ca to learn more. With that, let's get into the interview. Hi, John. Welcome to the Design Engineering Podcast. Hi, Mike. Pleasure to be here. So give me give us a little introduction. Who are you and, and what organization do you represent? I am the CEO of MyTax which uh, for those of you who don't know us, it's M-I-T-A-C-S, nothing to do with uh, C-R-A. I've been CEO for about two years. My background, going further back, and I won't give chapter and verse, but I'm academic background, uh, professor of chemistry and physics at two different universities, university administrator, and I decided to step away from the university a few years ago. Uh, I joined um, CIFAR, which is sort of an international uh, research promoting organization, and as I say, two years ago, I decided to uh, sign up with MyTax, which has uh, been great fun in spite of the pandemic. Uh, MyTax is, is an acronym for? Ah, well, there you go. It's not an acronym anymore. Oh, it's not? Okay. No, 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 so... no. But it's it's commonly, people still think it's an acronym. Um, so if you notice that we're, you know, uppercase M and lowercase ITAX, but it was an acronym. It was a network of academic researchers who were, they, it, the acronym stands for Mathematics, Information Technology, and Complex Systems. And so you can get from that an impression of, it was a bunch of applied mathematicians, computer scientists, studying, you know, standard academic problems, uh, university professors and students. And we got into the business uh, in order to promote industrial connections. We got into the business uh, nearly two decades ago of providing uh, research internships for graduate students. And so that's I the see. root of what we currently are. We stopped being the, uh, it was called Networks of Centers of Excellence, neither here nor there. But we stopped being the academic network about a decade ago and transferred into being a not-for-profit dedicated to basically creating university industry partnerships and, and driving those through student internships. When we say student, we mean like graduate students or undergrads or well, professors or teens? It's all, all of the above. So let me, okay. let me parse that out. MyTax started with an idea that, you know, wouldn't it be great if the high-level academic talent, in other words, PhD students, was made available to solve industry problems? And so that involved then the research professor, because the idea of our internships is the student doesn't leave the university. So it's not, I spent 18 years at University of Waterloo. So I know cooperative education programs inside and out. And those, the student leaves the university and goes and works in industry. And those are great, good for the student, good for industry. But our programs are a little different. And the student 
you know, uh, by contract with the federal government, the student never leaves the university. And so it becomes incorporated into their research program as a graduate student. That's the classic MyTax. It's still the vast majority of what we do is master's, PhD, and postdoctoral students working on these shared cooperative research projects uh, with their supervising professor, with an industry partner. More recently, we've gotten into including uh, professional students, in other words, business students, college students, polytechnic students, and very recently, undergraduate students. So we can work with students of any flavor or level. Most of the work is with more advanced students, but you know we're open to if it's a, as long as it's a partnership that promotes innovation in the non-academic partner. And, and most of the work is with, with industry, but mm -hmm. we also work with not-for-profits, with municipalities. You know, we, we've got a wide range of potential non-academic partners. And the basic idea is how can we better exploit the talent and expertise that resides in our post-secondary institutions to solve problems outside of the academy. And the allure for the industry partner is <clears throat> access to technologies or talents that they wouldn't necessarily have in-house or how does... All of the above. So again, it's the big allure is talent recruitment and talent retention. So industry gets, as with a cooperative education program, industry gets to work with a very talented student who they can then employ once they graduate. So that's benefit number one. Benefit number two, which is the principal benefit during the internship, is the students are working on a real problem. Industry has something they can't figure out or something they help figuring out. And the student provides a conduit to the university expertise, I'll, I'll say university, post-secondary expertise, and also the equipment that's available. I mean, our requirement is the student has to spend roughly half their time at the university and half their time at the industry partner doing their internship. So they don't transfer entirely the industry partner and they don't do contract research at the university. They do both. I mean, it's supposed to be a, a real partnership driven by this student internship. So as I understand it, MyTax is facilitating this pairing that has already happened. So no, or sometimes it's sometimes we actually do the matchmaking. So oh, I see. Okay. The projects get developed in all sorts of different ways. So sometimes we have well, currently the number is about 115 business development professionals across Canada. So there's chances are if you're an industry in pick a Canadian city, you're an industry in Trois Rivières, and you've got a problem. So the business development people can find out about this because they are all always in contact with the local environment, with local post-secondary institutions, local industry. And they'll find out about a problem that some industry potential partner has. And they'll say, well, you know, we have just the professor and students at the local university or a university down the road that are actually interested in the same problem. And so the match will be done. Sometimes the university professor has a pre-existing partnership with a company. Sometimes the company gets created as a result of university discoveries, like it's a mm -hmm. spin-off company of the university. So the, the potential projects come at us in many different ways, either driven by the, the professor and the students or a company that was founded out of the university or industry looking for somebody in the university who could help them out. And the secret for us is the business development people are the ones who do the matchmaking and, and sort of shepherd the projects through to, you know, hopefully a happy ending. 
So this is a not-for-profit. Is it? Yep. Is it? Is it like an arm's length uh, crown corporation? Is it just like its own separate thing that has government funding attached to it? Or is it? Is it just separated from government funding altogether? How does that? Work? No, no. We're yeah. We rely on government funding. So okay. so right. our funding formula is that uh, an intern an internship is the cost is split evenly between industry money and I'll say my tax money, but my tax money is taxpayer money. Mm-hmm. We're funded, we're completely arm's length from government. So we're not, we're not crown or government agency. We're an independent not-for-profit. Gotcha. Funding comes from all 10 provinces plus Yukon territory. And the largest single funder is the federal government through ICED. So Funding is uh, under the ideal circumstances would be about 40% federal money, 20% provincial money, and 40% industry money, roughly speaking. So it's it's basically all, you know, any one of our projects is funded by, you know, the federal government, the province, and industry. So the two entities in this, the private en- enterprise and the student or the, the university uh, people, they they come to some kind of agreement and then a and and sort of refine what the research project will be about and then submit that as an application to MeTax to be funded in some way? Is there, yeah. d- d- does each party have skin in the game financially? Um, we're a membership organization, so not for profit, but our members are the universities. Okay. They pay a membership fee uh, to belong to MyTax and to help support our operations. A very, It's a very small, it's only about 2% of our budget, but nonetheless, they pay a membership fee. Sure. Um, then the application, the skin in the game from the universities, the membership fee is part of it, but most of it is the grants are processed through the university. So the university has to administer the grants. The students are registered at the university. And so the university has to make sure that the students are taken care of, basically, that they that it's really part of their academic program, et cetera. So, you know, the students remain students of the university. So that's the university contribution, which is, it's an in-kind, but it's a really important in-kind contribution because it's not, uh, you know, it's not trivial work administering the grants and taking care of the students. Industry has skin in the game in the sense that they have to, first of all, provide money to support the internship, but also industry facilities, industry expertise. You know, these students have to be supervised in industry as well. They're not just sort of thrown into industry and nobody takes care of them you know Mm -hmm. so industry commits to they'll take care of the students and make sure the project progresses and then of course you know skin in the game from my tax we're paying you know half the cost of the internship as well as we're administering as well the proposals come in and they are everything we do has to be peer reviewed and so and and of course our peers are a mixture of academic and industry experts Mm-hmm. And so we don't support a project unless we know that it stands a good chance of contributing to Canadian innovation. So there's there's an assessment sort of. Absolutely. This, yeah, this no, looks no. like there's some there, there. And Yeah, some of our programs, we have international programs where we bring student, very talented students to Canada, hoping to keep them here. And those programs are highly competitive. We get about 25,000 applications for a few thousand places. Wow. The other programs are sometimes competitive generally not we 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 don't have a fixed deadline for our standard programs or what we call accelerate which are these uh innovation internships they they come into us we peer review them as they come in we try and do that quickly because of course industry wants a solution 
you know, yesterday generally. Sure. And so for a small project, we try and turn around a funding decision within a month. Bigger projects take a bit longer because the, the review process is more complicated. But uh, if you just want a couple of students for a year to solve a problem, we can generally make a decision within a month of the application coming in. Is there a typical time limit on how long these projects last? Is there a minimum? Yeah, so the minimum the minimum is is four to six months. So a single what we call an internship unit is typically four months of, of work for a single student. We have projects that have hundreds of internship units and spread over, you know, three years or more. Wow. So if there's a consortium of companies that want a body of work done, or there's a big company that wants a body of work done that's going to take three years and involve many, many students and postdoctoral fellows. We take that in as a proposal and we make a decision on the overall project. And then as the project progresses, they'll identify specific students. And we don't we don't bill the companies until the student is identified and we have a start date. So everything we do is driven by very specific, okay, for this four-month period, this student is going to be working on the project. And then the company pays for that student and the money gets transferred to the university. And as I say, every all the funding is channeled through the universities. I'm just taking it from like our readership, which would be on the commercial side of it and stuff. Yeah. So the funding would then come back through the university to them at the at some endpoint or at some stage along they the course. students would get paid as the work as the work gets done. So basically I see. Student is going to start in September. They're going to work for eight months, let's say, which will be two internship units. We would invoice the company and say, well, you're going to pay for eight months worth of work. And the company would send us the money. We would then send, we would add our contribution, send it to the university. Or sometimes the money goes directly to the university and we add our money at the university level. So, but somehow the company gets billed and they pay their half. We provide the other half. And it, it functions more or less as a research grant held by the university. So the university is accountable to make sure the student gets paid properly and everything else. But the money's prepared. The money's given in advance. So the student gets paid as they do the work. For the company side of it and stuff, this is a relatively inexpensive way to get access to research and expertise and facilities that would be way beyond their, their capacity in, in a purely commercial uh, Absolutely. atmosphere. Absolutely. And, and it's, it's exceedingly low risk because of course the company, the student is a student, the company is not hiring mm. it's the student. So they're not taking on the liability of having a research employee that they may not need for more than eight months. The ideal circumstance is the company decides that the student is fabulous. They'd sure love to have them as, you know, part of their research and development workforce. And they take on the student after they graduate. But mm -hmm. the company has, the only risk the company has is that they're paying for a fixed number of months of high quality student problem solving. If it works out, then they may choose to, you know, take the student on or enter into a new research area. So it's, it is a very, I mean, considering the quality of the talent, it's very low cost. I mean, to pay 7,500 bucks for four months of a PhD level student with advanced training in just the area you need help in, yeah, not a bad price to pay. No, not at all. <clears throat> so how does one qualify? Are there particular uh, dequalifying or the conditions or attributes that a company has to uh, 
satisfied? Is it Canadian only companies? Or? No, no, we can work with, it's, it's a little more complicated working with international companies um, because we're spending, you know, Canadian taxpayers dollars on this. Right. We need to be convinced. And, and it's part of our judging uh, that there's a benefit to Canada. In other words, we're not interested in paying students to develop IP for a foreign company that then stays overseas. And the only benefit is the student gets paid for an internship. That's uh, mm, yeah, that's not good. Um, so we, so, but other than that, we of course qualify the company. I mean, you know, there, as, as you can imagine, there are companies that are a bit of a sham. So we're not so interested in working with them. So, <laughs> but if it's a, if it's a real company with real product line that they need help with or consulting, whatever they do, as long as it's a real company and we're convinced that, uh, that we can help them innovate and that they want to innovate, then yeah, we'll support it. It's a, you know, as I say, we deal with startup companies. So, so, you know, some student yeah. has a clever idea, starts up a company, we can provide help. You, know? you mentioned the, the intellectual property. I know that gets sticky. It's been a while since I've delved <laughs> into the uh, technology transfer uh, area, but um, does each university have its own? I know back in the day when I did an article on this, uh, you know, particular companies were very peculiar for for allowing their their professors to be entrepreneurial. Like in the course of my work here, I invented something, and now it's they get they let the professor keep that or the student keep that and spin it off. Some of them were very draconian. Anything that you make with our stuff is ours. And kind of- I mean, the, the short answer is that every university is different. Hmm. Uh, okay. So it's not the American system with the Bay-Dole Act is that, of course, the company, any any intellectual property developed at, as a result of university research is owned by the university. And it's always licensed out to, to appropriate companies. But most universities in Canada have a requirement that any invention gets disclosed to the university so the university can derive benefit if it's actually commercialized. But the majority of Canadian universities, the inventor, i.e. the professor and students, will own the intellectual property. They may assign it back to the university. They may assign it to a company. But my tax role, my tax makes no claim on any intellectual property. So that's uh, we're very clear on that, that we're neutral. We're a neutral third party. However, we do insist is too strong a word but uh certainly with foreign companies we insist on knowing what are the intellectual property arrangements because we need to be convinced that canadians are going to benefit um with canadian universities working with canadian companies we just need to we need to know okay what's going to be done with the results of this research but that's it's really up to the universities the universities have tech transfer offices and you know by and large they you know to varying degrees of success, they know how to commercialize intellectual property. Some universities do it better than others. Right, right. So if I if I have a, a very talented <clears throat> research student who has access to, you know, a professor who can help them sort of, you know, with any uh, kind of problems, and they come up with the perfect solution for what I need, and now I'm thinking, God, I'd really love to make a million of these. Is that is that an agreement that happens beforehand? Like everything is laid out? in clear sort of contractual agreements or is that something that's unless unless you want to mess afterwards yes is the answer i mean you never (laughs) and i i don't i can't imagine an industry partner engaging even at the you know the low low price of seventy five hundred dollars every four months i can't imagine an industry uh engaging in that sort of partnership research without having the uh, intellectual property 
uh, provisions clearly spelled out in advance. And it's, it's a disaster if you don't, um, because then you, you know, everybody thinks that, you know, two things are true. Everybody thinks their intellectual property is worth millions of dollars and most of it isn't. <laughs> and if it is worth millions of dollars, then of course everybody wants a piece of it. So yeah, yeah it's, it's best to spell those things out in advance. And that's, that's the, my tax role because we deal with a lot of small and medium enterprises who may not, may not be very sophisticated in intellectual property assignment and so we you know we try and help out and make sure that that uh you know nobody's being taken advantage of again it's you know we're not we're not responsible for for developing intellectual property but uh, we want to see it get developed i mean it's we're funded by government to promote innovation in the country so the university is the employer of the student yep and the contractual obligations of each is that the company is doing everything it can to oversee or help or or like they're not they're not they're not just bring the person the student in and then sort of ignoring them and then they you know they just sort of sit at a desk and and check emails all day and exactly yeah and that's part of the review process what we're checking for in the review process is first of all that it truly is innovative hmm. right that it's not just somebody you know sitting at a desk and playing games or polishing shoes or doing something sure. that has yeah. nothing to do with innovation yeah yeah and you know the the check on that is that companies are unlikely to invest in in something where the students just going to be wasting their time. But sure. but no, we do want. I, of course, things can go wrong. But you know the vast and and I mean the the vast vast majority of our internships are because we ask the students when they complete the internship. You know what was your experience? And you know there can be bad experiences, but you know we do tens of thousands of these things a year. And the, you know, the, the response rate from students is they're very satisfied with the quality of the internship, what they learned, what the, and, and also we, you know, we, we survey our partners, both on the university side and especially the industry side. Got so it. we want to make sure that there's full quality in these things. Yeah. Yeah. And I was, I was going to ask you how many of these projects do you usually, is there a limit to how many that you can process and do there's a funding limit so we've actually right. we're very generously funded so that's actually not much of a limit right now gotcha so but clearly these things cost money and so you know we've we've got quite a good deal of money from provinces and the federal government so right now i would say we're limited by how many of these we can we can how many of these partnerships we can create last year we did seventeen thousand of these four-month work units now that's not 17,000 projects, 17,000 yeah. students, but it's getting on for 10,000 students and it's getting on for several thousand projects. Cause each, as I say, the projects range from, we need a student for eight months. If you're, it's a very small company to, we need, you know, a dozen students and postdocs working for three years. So on average, we, uh, we do several thousand of these projects a year. Wow. Well, we, we work with, you know, we want to work with more companies. Um, we work with six, 7,000 companies wow. sort of thing. Uh, yeah. Most of them small and medium enterprises, uh, which is the way the Canadian economy is structured. Um, so, yeah. And, and we'd like to, there's a lot more companies out there that could, that could use the help. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of students out there who could use the experience. So we, we've been doubling in size about every three years. That's amazing. Well, That's a lot of demand and there's a lot of need for it. Are there common misconceptions that you run into when you're approaching, when you're, you know, your business development people are sort of approaching a new company or things that they, that they have just stuck in their head that, that, that prevent them or, or, or hinder the problem? Well, I think there's several 
misconceptions. One of the most common misconceptions is that, you know, PhD students aren't that useful to a company because after all, they're just, you know, they're academic minded. They want to be professors, they're eggheads. That's, that's a misconception. And mm. we always find that when the companies actually take on one of these students, they discover that no, actually PhD students know how to solve problems. The other misconception um, for us is that, uh, you know, we're because of the MITACS acronym, that we're just in the technology business and we're, you know, providing computer scientists and engineers, which is a large fraction of our business. But we can provide social science students. We can provide, in some cases, humanities students. If, you know, we can provide whatever talent a company needs. You know, we're not just restricted to dealing with engineers and computer scientists. And then finally, it's it's the notion of what it takes to be successful. Canada doesn't have as innovative an economy and and industry base as I'd like to see. And so I think it's just the whole notion that prosperity is linked to innovation. You know, yeah. a company can make money without being very innovative. Um, I don't know if that's a good long-term strategy, but that's what we're trying to do is promote the idea that actually everybody's more prosperous and productive if they're more innovative. Is there something that you, having been in, you know, having seen this landscape for, for many years, is there something that st- sticks out as hindering that that innovative culture of innovation here? I don't, you know, it's, there's, there's been so many reports written over the years about why sure. is Canada not very innovative. Part of it was, I think it's fading, but fear of failure. Mm. I mean, if you do something that made you money, for the last five years, why would you do anything different? Because doing things differently is risky. Right. And so Canada tends to be a fairly, you know, risk adverse nation. I mean, we're risk adverse in the way we invest money. We're risk adverse in, in sort of the way we make plans for the future. You know, we like things to be safe and secure and, you know, Canada's a prosperous country. It's, it's worked for us. I think, uh, our productivity is not great compared to American productivity, but, uh, you know, it's kind of worked for us. But, uh, yeah, I think risk adverse is the main thing, that, that people just don't want to take chances. Sure. On the upside, are there any particular success stories that, that you think of? Yeah, there's a bunch. And it's really, well, there's one that's right in my mind because I met with the, uh, I was, I'm traveling again. You know, it's just amazing after two years of hiding in this downstairs bedroom yeah. um yeah i was in toronto recently uh toronto and ottawa and and one of the people i met with was the ceo of a, co- a little company called Zentech, which is sort of you know they're a very innovative know, company yeah. and yeah. they you know they they basically they do a lot of things it's mm-hmm. quite amazing for the size of the company but one of the things that we did with one of our interns actually it was an internship project was develop a coding for you know basically medical masks and it was a you know graphene oxide coating, so very high tech graphene oxide, colloidal silver, and it's it's got fabulous antimicrobial, antiviral properties. Hmm. It just it just knocks things out, and so it's been it's it's now approved as as a medical mask coating, and that was that wow. resulted that was the, a direct result from a and I'm just looking here. It was I got his first. It's Arash Hadadi who was a MyTax intern, he was working with this Zentech company. And uh, so the one the one thing about uh, the CEO of Zentech is he told me he lives in Barbados, he commutes between Barbados and Toronto. So I thought that that's, that's my next job. I want a job yeah. right between Barbados and Toronto. But uh, 
who knows, right? I've got a, I'm, you know, I'm pretty busy now with my tax, but you know, boy, my next gig, you know, if I can get that sort of job. But anyways, no, Zentex is an, an impressive little company, but it is little. So we hope yeah. it gets a lot bigger. And we've got those sort of success stories. I know there was one on the, uh, on the East Coast, again, sticking with the carbon technologies. And I'm blanking on the name of it, but it was an East Coast company where one of our interns developed a coating for ship's hulls. Hmm. which reduced biofouling by some enormous amount. And so biofouling is what slows ships down. Yeah. And so the, you know, there's, there's an amazing amount, you know, living here in uh, Canada's most important port city, you know, there's a lot of pollution that comes from ships, you know, they burn bunker crude and uh, you know, they, they contribute a lot to uh, climate change. And so anything that reduces the drag on ships hulls and makes them more fuel efficient is, good for everybody you know yeah. especially the ship owners but it's you know it's good for the environment too very interesting and again a my tax internship so that's been a problem since they had ships i mean well exactly exactly and it's dragging uh, different kinds of like i mean they asked i mean you'd have to pull it into dry dock and and scrape all that scrape it off, off and then re- paint it up again and i mean there's all kinds of uh invasive species that accidentally get dragged from one part of the world to another because Yep. Somebody hitched a ride on the bottom of a boat, and yeah, and this I think that this this um, carbon nanotube paint basically wow. just makes the ship slippery, so nothing can stick yeah. to it. I think is the way it works. I mean, that's my unsophisticated view yeah. of, of of how it works. Yeah, so. that's transformative. That's I mean, that's one of those small things that you think you cut ten percent, twenty, fifteen percent off the fuel costs of all those major container ships flying around the world. Yeah, that's that's that adds up to a huge amount. That's right. And so there's and and it's fairly typical that we work with these smaller companies, but they're very technologically oriented. I mean, they want to, you know, because they've they've got to compete, survive and grow. And so they're really interested in innovation. We touched on the the hashing out the IP thing. Are there other best practices or common pitfalls that that companies should be aware of? Yeah, one of the things that that and again it's a Canadian thing is that we're not as good as we should be at creating international connections. And that's that's because the big market is to the south of us. And so when we think internationally, we say, "Oh, well, I got to get into the American market." And of course that's true. I mean, it's the largest richest it's the richest country on earth. So yeah, you want to address the American market, but maybe not always, right? Um there's a European market that's very large, there's an Asian market that's very large. And so, you know, we have a program, it's a very small program, but it's uh, MyTax Entrepreneurship International, MEI. And that basically allows small companies to, you know, it's basically a travel grant. We send small companies to a partner incubator overseas Hmm. to help them develop local knowledge, local connections, which can then lead to, to local markets. And that's something that, you know, Canadian, uh, Canada is a small country. And, and although the American market is very large, it's not the only market on earth. And some technologies are better sold in Europe or, or in Asia. Sure. And so helping companies develop those international, to think immediately about international connections, even though it's an expensive business to, to create overseas connections. But uh, still, if a Canadian company is going to get large and survive, it has to. Yeah. Are there ways that things can go wrong? that you've seen happen that common enough to, to sort of call it to somebody's attention? I think the, you know, the things that we try to avoid are what I talked about where the student 
doesn't really work on a, you know, that basically the, the project is not quite what was represented. Sure. Um, clearly, once the money's been assigned and the student is working there, it's a little late to change that. But we try not to make the same mistake twice with, yeah. with, with a company. That doesn't happen very often. We're pretty good at, at qualifying companies and, and making judgment about the quality of the project. The student doesn't work out. Again, that doesn't happen very often. But, you know, maybe the student isn't that good. We haven't seen many issues in all of the thousands of these things that we've done. You know, bad things can happen. You okay. know, um, there okay. can be harassment of the students. There can be things that that we prefer not to have happen. Sure. Um, it's very rare, fortunately. Um, right. And we do, because we've got so many of the business development people across the country who do pay attention to what's going on in the companies and in the universities, we're pretty well informed and we, we do our best to avoid problems. And it's important to remember that this is a na- nationwide. I know you guys, are you guys based in BC? No, we're, well, our, our sort of corporate address, we, we were incorporated originally in BC and we have roughly equivalent sized uh, Vancouver, Toronto and Montreal offices, and then a somewhat smaller Ottawa office. And then, you know, offices spread across the country. We typically will have people working out of the universities. Um, so, so yeah, we've got, I, I can't remember, there's some 30 offices nationwide, but most of them are just, you know, one of our business development people is based at a given university. But so four principal offices across the country. And for for companies who hear this and, and are thinking about, do they call the MyTax offices and maybe talk to one of these business development absolutely. people? And, okay. That's the absolutely the best way to do it. And they can get connected through the, you know, the MyTax.ca website and the business development people, you know, because they're salespeople, basically. I mean, they're highly qualified salespeople, most of them have yeah. PhDs, but they're salespeople and their job is to create partnerships. And they have knowledge of all, uh, everything that's out there. And they say, you know what, this would be perfect for UVic or, yeah, exactly. or, or yeah, Waterloo well, that's or Queens. One of the, or, yeah. And they, and if they don't know themselves, they know which one of their business development colleagues will know. They're a fairly tight knit group. And so sure. they, they do understand it's their job to know what's going on across the country. And that is one advantage that we have. I mean, a company of course can directly approach a university and that's great. And uh, they often do. And maybe the university will have the technical expertise they need. But, uh, you know, having been a university administrator, if somebody approached me at UBC for a problem solution, I wouldn't direct them to the University of Victoria. I try and find somebody at UBC. Yeah, yeah. My yeah, yeah, we're, you know, we're neutral. If it makes us just as happy to support a researcher at uh, University of Victoria as University of Toronto. I think the main thing is to understand that my tax is whatever discipline you need, we can provide it. Whatever level of student you need, we can provide it. We're trying to basically support innovation across what we call the continuum of innovation. In other words, from initial research and development discovery right on through to having something you can sell in the marketplace. Mm. And we can provide talent across that spectrum. So if you need a business strategy, we'll find you a business student. If you need an IP strategy, we'll find you a law student. If you need an engineer to invent something, we'll find you an engineer. So, yeah, we're we're in business to help uh, industry, whatever their problem is, as long as it's innovation related. Well, thank you very much, John. I appreciate you joining us. Yeah, no, it's very interesting. It's been fun. So uh, hopefully, since we're in business of selling internships and promoting innovation, hopefully some of your listeners will get in touch with one of our business development people. I bet they will. Thank you for joining us. 
If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out the Design Engineering Podcast's other episodes at www.design-engineering.com slash podcasts, or subscribe to the podcast via the major streaming services including Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. And finally, this episode was brought to you by IGUS, a manufacturer of self-lubricating plastic components. IGUS uses tripologically optimized polymer blends to design its bearing materials. These blends consist of base materials for wear resistance, reinforcing fibers for high forces, and embedded solid lubricants for dry running operation. Visit igus.ca to browse through products or to contact an expert. Thank you.